The world around us is suffering from an abject absence of truth. All around us there is uncertainty in things which come to distract and confuse. But Jesus, He wants you to have certainty in your life where you can clearly understand what is good, true, and beautiful, and affirm the radiant light of the gospel so that we can all aspire to do great and excellent things just as God made us. God did not make us to be sad things who desire pity, but to be great and noble creatures who would aspire to reflect our Maker, to bring order to the world around us, and to do wonderful and noble things. Jesus does not want His children beholden to the uncertainty of the world, but clearly seeing the world around them and able to live in goodness. We must understand that the charge of our lives is not to just change the circumstances in which we were born or the time in which we live, but to use the talents which were given to us. Because if we're honest, we have no choice of when we were born or the circumstances around us. But yet we do have a choice of what we do with the talents that God gave us. And the charge on our lives is to invest in our neighbors, our families, and especially our children to teach them of Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. As Jesus teaches there in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, the moment we're in now where there seems to be such a, a decrepit void of truth, that is not new in fallen creation. It's been going on for quite a while. And in fact, the last question that is officially asked of Jesus there with his interview with Pontius Pilate is the question, what is truth? And when the world the Jewish world, the Roman world, and even God himself, do not all see the answer to that question on the same terms, well, they kill the good. When people cannot agree on what is true, they kill the good. And that is just a biblical fact which is handed to us that we should appreciate. But aside from all that, Jesus shows us the way to that good, the way to truth. He is the way. And regardless of how much the world wants to convince us that we have to satisfy the world on its terms, you don't. We look upon the great throne of heaven with its booming peals of thunder, that dangerous and compelling image of God, which is quite intense. And we see its beauty, and that is what we should refine ourselves with. Today, we're going to be looking at Mark 9 and learning how we should appreciate the charge to invest in our children. So thank you for joining me. I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. Let's open up in prayer, and we'll jump to our message. Gracious Heavenly Father, I ask that you come and be with us today, that you would open up our hearts and minds to receive your wisdom, strength, and encouragement. Lord, come and convict us that our eyes and ears may be transformed to you, to see clearly, to not have confusion, but instead to have the great certainty and assurance which you have in store for us. Lord, we thank you for the wonderful call you've placed on our lives and the opportunity we have here on this earth to serve you. We ask all of this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So Jesus indeed loves the little children, and he tells us quite clearly, it would be better that one meet the terrible fate of being pulled into the deep darkness of the sea than stand before God having done evil to the precious children. And people often wonder, they say, how could there be a loving God if there is such evil committed against children, such evil committed against innocence? Well, in the scriptures, God comes and tells us quite clearly. God does not approve of this. He does not approve of this at all. And in fact, a terrible, miserable, torturous fate would be better for someone than they go and stand before God on that day of judgment, having in their past done evil to children. We must understand that Scripture does not hide from us the terrible, fallen state of the world. Proverbs 4.16 presses us with the wretched truth that there are some who cannot rest until they do evil 
they are robbed of sleep until they make someone stumble. If we look around our world, we have to understand that motivations are very important. When we look throughout the Holy Scriptures, whether it be the parable of the wedding banquet, the parable of the talents, or the parable of the workers who at the end of the day, whether they started in the morning or evening, they all get the same pay and enter into the joy of their master. What we have to understand is that God looks to our motivations, not just our intentions, not just what we would like to have happen, but the question of whom are we motivated to serve? What are we motivated to do when we go out in the world? Are we looking to satisfy our own ambitions, to satisfy the approval of our peers, or are we looking to serve God? We look at our opportunities, our, our difficult, dark valleys which come up in life as opportunities to serve Him. We have to understand that we are not naturally good. We are born with a sin nature. And what Proverbs 4.16 is telling us is that there are people who are wholeheartedly motivated to do evil. When they wake up in the morning, it is their ambition. They hide their chiseled teeth and they go out into the world looking to do evil. And they cannot rest until they have accomplished that. Now that seems like such a heavy weight to know that there is such a vile and wretched motivation in the world. But Proverbs 4.16 is not standalone in its tragedy. It actually comes right after Proverbs 4.15, which gives us the preventative warning about the path of wickedness, telling us to avoid it, do not travel on it, and turn from it and go on our way. And in Proverbs 4.15, the language tells us three times, do not go this way. It's taking it and making it a superlative of the highest caliber, saying do not go near the way of wicked. There are many things in our world which prey upon children, desiring to corrupt their bodies and their minds. And I think one of the most wicked things we have going on right now in our world is the corruption of, of children's ability to see what is good and true. There's a lot of stuff in our world which pretends to be virtue and heroism that is not. Things that tell children, you know, be a hero if you, you will just stay at home and keep anyone else from, from being sick. In other words, be a hero if you avoid death or something like that. If you avoid suffering, that makes you a hero. But when we look actually at the New Testament, we look at the teachings and life of Christ, if you actually do something which is truly noble, truly heroic, that will take you to a point of death. It will take you to a point where the, the great anger of the world comes after you. You're going to be opposed by everyone. We look throughout the Old Testament, we see the great accounts of Esther and Nehemiah, who didn't have all the answers for the world. But Esther, when the charge came before her, perhaps you were born for a time such as this, she steps into her royal robes saying, if I perish, I perish. It really does just stir my, my soul with fury when I see how the world around us teaches children things that are not virtuous as if they are. And it reminds me that what Jesus teaches us, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great then is that darkness? Evil wants to corrupt bodies and minds. It is here for total abject corruption. And our world is being destroyed. It's being consumed by a calamitous absence of truth, an absence of noble virtue. But we must arm our children to be strong men and women who walk in the goodness of God. We must raise in their hearts, in our families and our neighbors, the radiant honor of the gospel, that they might be able to withstand the wiles of evil. Going back to Proverbs 4, we find in verses 18 and 19, the text saying, The path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. 
But the way of the wicked is like a deep darkness. They do not even know what makes them stumble. You know, one of the things we find throughout Scripture is that evil is always tied to deception. And in our modern world, we have this strange sort of phenomenon where people believe that I can only be deceived if I consent to being deceived. I am offended if I feel like I am offended. I am happy if I feel like I am happy. I am good if I feel like I am good. We have this whole idea that says my feeling, my opinion on the matter, governs what's really going on in the world around us. And when it comes to the question of are you actually walking in the light or actually walking in the darkness, our modern world often thinks, do I feel like I'm walking in the light or do I feel like I'm walking in the darkness? But scripture shows us the idols that you bow down to, you don't even have to like. You don't have to have some sort of personal covenant with them. People have been hungry for vengeful, meaningless, pointless idols all along. When Moses leads the people across the Red Sea, they turn around and say, Moses, were there not enough graves for us back there with Pharaoh? We preferred his vengeful, awful, you know, fake divinity to you leading us through the wilderness. We, we, did, we don't like this. When Moses spends time on Mount Sinai there as he receives those Ten Commandments, the children of God, they go out there and they make a golden calf, which does nothing. But yet they're there kissing its toes in hunger for it. We find throughout history, a lot of times people are not aware of what makes them stumble. And that really is a disturbing thing. And we wonder to ourselves, how do we make sure we're not falling prey to so great an evil? How are we not deceived ourselves? Well, the answer is also given to us in Scripture. The question of your motivations. Whether you are given one, two, or five talents, are you motivated to do something for God? And our motivations, they are going to do more to predict the outcome of our day then will our intentions, our, our plans, what we would like to see happen. The motivations we have are very, very important. They're more important than the tools we have around us, than the circumstances which present themselves, and they're certainly more important than the plans we have. And the motivations we have, they actually end up shaping all of those things. And that's because they're further upstream than all of these lesser affairs. Jesus does not want his children beholden to the uncertainty of the world. He doesn't want them wishy-washy going around with the motivations of evil that are trying to deceive them. He wants them understanding where they stand. We must understand the charge of our lives to invest in our children, to teach them of Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. And going back to that verse I read from John 14, 6, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, we generally want our children to have something good. It's not a given in fallen creation. There are people who prey upon their own children. But generally, our innate God-given design says, I want good for my children. And what this scripture in John 14, 6 reminds us is that there is no path to goodness, no path to virtue, no path to God the Father above except through Christ. If you want Abraham, your son Isaac, to really have the goodness of God, you're going to have to offer him up to God. It may feel on the front end like you are sacrificing him and killing him. But in the end, you're finding out that God does not actually want his life. He wants his life to be fuller than it could be just by your own opinions and your own ambitions. When Jochebed lowered Moses down into the water, her desire to, to have her child survive, even if that took her to, to set the child away from her own certainty 
and hand him over to the greater certainty of God, that in her heart was the motivation to have real goodness for a child, and that meant setting her own empathetic desire aside and handing him over to the God of all creation who knows far more than she does. When we look at the, the world around us, if we desire our children to actually be armored and equipped to stand firm in the uncertain chaos of our world, then we're going to have to trust handing them to God. Now, just recently, it was St. Patrick's Day. And St. Patrick, he was somebody who really understood the charge of the gospel. His life was not separated from the brutal truth of fallen creation. He, as a child, as a youth, he was stolen from a roadman settlement in Britain, and he was forced into slavery as a youth in Ireland. But then, after several years of this, that vision came to him in his sleep, which gave him instructions to escape. And now, many of us, we would be simply pleased to escape from such a terrible state of slavery. But Patrick, he felt the great call of God to return to his old captors that he might teach them the firm and merciful love of Christ. Patrick desired to shape the world around him for the better. And the horrible evils of slavery, he knew that the gospel alone was capable of removing that. There would be no education, no amount of worldly storytelling that would ever be able to overcome this because the world always devolves back into some sort of tribalism. And what happened is Patrick, after he became an adult and he becomes a, a minister of the gospel, he sees that his own Roman brothers and sisters are now taking the Druid people as slaves, the Irish people, which were taking he and his neighbors as slaves when they were children. And Patrick was enraged by this because this was not true biblical living. And Patrick, he came and confronted the world around him. He confronted those who had returned the, the evil of slavery with more slavery. He looked at them and said, These miserable people do not realize the food that they offer to their friends and children is indeed a deadly venom. They are like Eve who is feeding death to her husband. And this is how evildoers are. They work death as eternal punishment. Patrick understood that it was not new for people to feed poison to their neighbors and children, and people are doing it today. This is not a process which is exempt from, from certain times. It is everywhere. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the idolatrous God of this age. It is here to instill unbelief, to blind the minds of unbelievers, and yes, it would love to blind the minds of believers too. It wants to negate, to stop the radiating illumination of the gospel of Christ Jesus, who is the very glory, the image of, of God. You know, going back to St. Patrick's life for a moment, it would be easy for us to imagine if we were stolen into slavery to think of ourselves as a sad thing to be pitied, as one who desired the great mercy of God to be nothing more than empathetic comfort. And our world is really hungry for this. Our world is hungry for two things, I've noticed. They're hungry for an empathetic God and a vengeful God. Our world is really hungry for a God that will come along and say, yes, you have been wronged. Yes, you have been sad. Yes, you have been a pitiful thing, and I'm here to give you the big hug. Our world is hungry from that on one end. And then on the other end, our world is hungry for a vengeful God who will come and smite our enemies and also tell us what to do and micromanage our lives so that we do not have to think for ourselves so that we can be passive and not have any responsibility on our shoulders. Our world is hungry for both of these things. But God did not make us for either of them. And this is where our message takes a more serious turn. God did not design you to be pitied. God did not design you 
that lamentation would be your desire and your goal. God does not want you to desire pity, but there is one who does. And here recently, I've really come to understand this fact. And it's, you can look in the Gospels, you can see demons who come to Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy on us. Are you here to torment us too? Hell likes pity. Evil likes to be pitied. And evil wants you to desire pity too. But God did not desire you to be a pitiful, sad thing. God desired you to be victorious with him. Adam and Eve were not made to be pitiful little things who waited around for the next hug. They were made to be the kings and queens of this terrestrial domain, who with great honor would dress the Garden of Eden with the order which God had designed for it, to be people who woke up every day going out to do the hard labor of maintaining the goodness of God. God desired you to be victorious. Whenever we have a problem that comes in our day, whether somebody did evil against us, whether a tragedy befell us, or maybe even something which doesn't seem to have much meaning at all, like a flat tire, whenever these things come upon us, our first instinct is often to pray to God, say, let me just go back in time and remove this calamity. Let me just come back and, and have some answer given to me so I don't have to solve this problem myself. Lord, give me the wisdom so that I can just push the pieces into their slots and not have to think for myself, but just let me know how to navigate this difficult time. We forget that God made us with free wills, with minds. They were sufficient to stand, though free to fall. God made us with a mind capable of loving Him, loving our neighbors, and thinking critically. Our design, our gift... Our innate charge is to be creatures that overcome these difficult moments. That's what God made us for. We look to 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, and it says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. We look to Romans 8, verses 31 through 39, and this teaches us that in all things we are more than conquerors. Throughout history, people have had really bad things weigh on their hearts. And in Romans 8, 31-39, the scripture reads, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not be with us and also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long, we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persecuted, and I am persuaded, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not have control over the circumstances by which we are born or which we endure. But as children of God, we are blessed when we overcome them. We are blessed when we have role models who teach us how to overcome them. 
And we are blessed when we step into the role of being good parents and families, good role models that teach our children to overcome trial and temptation. God made us to overcome. And through Christ, we can be reborn to view ourselves with honor rather than pity. Hell wants you to view yourself with pity. God wants you to look at your own body, your own design, with great dignity and honor. Not because of some broken state, but because of the beautiful providential design that was given to every man and woman who was born with the breath of life. Jesus teaches us directly in John 16, 33. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When we look to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 17-18, through 18, it reads, Therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error or lawlessness and fall from your secure position. But grow now in the grace of knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. As we wrap up our message, we're going to go now to Mark chapter 9. We're going to read verses 30 through 50, and in a few weeks after Easter, I'm going to come back and preach Mark 9 again. But for now, I want us to conclude our message today by reading Mark 9, 30 through 50, and letting this scripture speak for itself. It reads, They went on from there and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him. And three days after being killed, he will rise again. But they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. Then they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent. For on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was greatest. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, Whoever wants to be first must be last, and of all, servant of all. Then... He took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better you enter life maimed than have two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, for it is better you to enter life lame than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out, for it is better you enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where their worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire, and salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how then can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
With these words, let us grow in grace and raise up our children in the grace of God. The good things of God do not happen by accident, and the nether gloom beneath all worlds is hungry to rob our children of the love of God that is in store from them from the kingdom of heaven. Let us take courage in our hearts and teach our children wisely in the truth of Christ. With that, let's close by saying the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, power, and glory forever. Amen. And on that, God love you, and have a blessed day.